Today we will be in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, by grace through faith. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, good morning. You're probably wondering who the heck is this guy, and I would probably too. I checked out the website, and I saw my name up there, and I'm thinking, okay, they're probably thinking, who in the world is this guy? But I do have a connection with Regeneration through your pastor, Albert Lee. 1999, we attended pastoral school together down in Southern California at Calvary Chapel Golden Springs, and it was a real blessing. It's really interesting how the Lord brings people together. Albert and I were teamed up on what we called Slave Saturday. Every Saturday we would be from about 8 to noon serving the church in some capacity, whether it was cleaning toilets or painting walls or things like that. But Albert and I had the dubious honor of vacuuming the sanctuary. I tease him about that. It was uh, at Golden Springs, I think the seats, there was 2,300 seats in the sanctuary. So he had one half and I had the other half. So we really depended on each other because it would take four hours to vacuum each side and you're going in and out of chairs and things like that. We were taking correspondence classes at the time so we would have our Walkmans, remember those, with cassette tapes together. Yeah, it's old school. It really is old school. But if you can imagine your pastor, jeans, t-shirt, very quiet, just a real reserved, but the Lord paired us up and it's been really, really awesome because uh, we were both called up to serve in Northern California. I remember he left the program in 2000. And then uh, I came out in 2004 to serve at Calvary Chapel Solano, which is in Fairfield. So I was there for nine years, and now I'm with Pastor Cisco in Refuge at American Canyon. So my name is David Covarrubias, so thank you for welcoming me. And my beautiful wife, Patty, is with me today, so please say hello there. It's really interesting about Albert. I think I was the only person that called him Al, and he was very gracious about that because <laughs> everybody would call him Albert, I mean, the pastor staff and all that. And so it wasn't until he became a lead pastor, a senior pastor, I'm like, oh, I better call him Albert now, you know, just out of respect, because I would see him yearly, annually at the uh, pastor's conferences in um, Mount Hermon, and, and I'd be like, hey, Al, what's up? And then everybody would be Albert, Albert Lee, you know, and so <laughs> anyways, I figured I better get with the program. And he never said anything, which is totally like Albert to do that. 
Anyways, there is a little bit of background there. I appreciate you guys having me this morning. Little disclaimer, although we are ahead of schedule according to the schedule, so if I go a little bit long, please understand that. As Mike mentioned, we are in Ephesians this morning, and um, we're going to go through a study of what I call the relationship model, okay? Any business that has stood the test of time really started out with a good plan. I mean, before even the business opened its doors, it had a lot of preparation going into it. Before the bank would loan a single dime, the first thing they would ask for is the business model. They would do that. And per Wikipedia, a business model describes the rationale of how an organization creates, delivers, and captures value, okay? Whether that's economic, social, or any other forms of value, the business model. So the bank would take a look at that, and they would see great importance in that. You could see how important it is to have a plan before even opening uh, the smallest of businesses. Now, the plan had to be simple enough so that people would capture the vision and buy into the business. And if you do, and the conditions are right, well, then it should be a success. Now, I'm a sports guy, so I relate to, to things by way of sports, and I know that probably drives my wife and my kids crazy because I'll be talking to them and they're trying to decipher what in the world I'm talking about. So I won't get too heavy into that. But like Albert, I have mostly daughters, right? And so sports analogies don't go over too well in, in the house. But as I thought about a business plan, as it relates to sports, I can easily put together like the process of fielding a successful team, okay? Having a plan like before the season gets started, who's gonna be the coach, who's gonna play what position, what the strategy is so that the team will deliver, okay? And I've had some experience coaching my daughter's softball teams over the past several years. And even when they were seven, eight, nine, ten years old, now they're 14 and 12, this is our last year of Bobby Sox softball, I always took the time to have a plan so that they would have a successful experience, okay? It wouldn't just be throwing them out there to the wolves, so to speak. Now, did we win the championship every year? No, far from it. But they did learn, and we were able to develop, and we were prepared when game time rolled out. When we think about God and his plan for us, okay, he has a model too. He has a plan for us as well. I mean, we always say that, don't we? Well, God's got the plan. It's true, and he does, right? This is going to be his relationship model in these set of scriptures. The good news is it's not rocket science, and so it's so easy, as a matter of fact, that some people are even challenged by it. Hebrews 8.10, which is taken from the book of Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews wrote this. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the plan? Yep, that's the plan. And do you know that there's still people out there that will say, all right, well, let me think about it and get back to you. I'm not sure why there's resistance to that, but there is. And it's about a simple plan as I know. So as opposed to a business model that I spoke to earlier, where it's kind of sterile, we take a look at the Lord's model as it pertains to our relationship with him, and it's going to be on a very personal, personal basis. You'll see that it's really simple. He's taken time to prepare the plan, and it's a plan that we really shouldn't refuse. The best thing about it is there's no stress, no drama involved. And better, he does all the work. In the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, 
we're going to take a look at three aspects of it. The challenge of the plan. Now, the challenge of the plan is who's your target audience. The plan itself, whose plan it is, we know. But what vehicles are used. And then the success of the plan, how the plan is implemented. So before we get started into the scripture, why don't you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for this time. Father, thank you for this church and this building. And uh, Lord, for, gosh, just making a place for us, Lord, that we could get closer to you and study your word. Be with Pastor Albert, Lord, as he is teaching off campus, so to speak. Just ask that you be with him and may your Holy Spirit guide him and direct him. And Lord, open up our hearts to what your word would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you're not there already, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we have the Apostle Paul here. He is speaking to the church of Ephesus, a church that was smack dab right in the middle of metropolitan Ephesus. They were a very worldly, if you will, industrious city. And uh, they had uh, this thriving church in Ephesus. You'll note that the Lord Jesus himself speaks of this church in Revelation chapter 2. This is the church that left their first love. And so Paul here is talking to them. So in verse 3, or 1 through 3, I'm sorry, let's, let's read through those uh, again. Paul writes, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, the challenge of any good plan is to identify the target audience. I mean, the product's important, but who's going to be the customer, right? Now, the Apostle Paul starts right off with, and he labels it, he says, and you. Okay? We know that he's addressing the believers in the church, but this also applies to us as believers today. So here we find out who the target audience is. This is you and I. Okay? Now, we may not have liked the description in the following verses that he gave, but we'll see that we can relate to those a little bit as we go along. As all believers and people really in general, we need the comfort. So Paul follows up with, and you, we read that he, he Jesus, has made us alive. And he has. Rest in that. Okay? But before that, the word says that we were spiritually dead, which was separated from this relationship with him. What were we separated from? Because of our trespasses and sins. Now, Paul doesn't remind us, and I don't remind you that of today, so that you'll feel awful about yourself or even condemn yourself. That's not the point. But without knowing that condition, there would be no need for a savior. Right? There'd be no need for God to have a plan bringing us to him. The truth is, we were all spiritually dead in our sins and disconnected from God. Now, sin, of course, as you've probably heard a hundred times, is missing the mark. It could just be falling short. It could be diving deep into sin. And it could be just where you're trying real hard, maybe just a little weak in certain areas. Sin isn't always an act of willful disobedience. It isn't always something that way, which best describes trespasses, okay? Where you're willfully, deliberately disobeying God and his commands. Now, when you trespass, you're constantly crossing the line in places where you shouldn't. And it's safe to say that whether you're just falling short or deliberately going that route, the results are the same. Separation from God. Romans 6.23 references the wages of sin is death, we all know. Continued sinful living leads to that separation 
from God. Now, please keep in mind, there's no condemnation there, that as believers, we profess our faith in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross, and we've been forgiven. We have been forgiven. And that's past, current, future sin, okay? We were washed and we were cleansed by his blood as believers, okay? That work was done. Many of us, this includes myself too, have made the mistake of not fully grasping that, not fully believing that we have been forgiven and now we're under grace and not under law, which would be based on what we do as opposed to what Jesus has done already on the cross, okay? And I bring that up just kind of on a side note. In verse two, we continued that we walked, we walked according to the course of this world. And in Paul speaking to the church, he wants you to identify really with where you were at, but not walking as we know it, right? Where we're walking somewhere, I mean, we usually know where we're going. We have a purpose, right? If someone was to get up in sanctuary, like in the next few minutes, I would surmise they're either going to the bathroom, going to blow their nose, you know, something like that. They're walking out for a purpose. Maybe they just didn't like what I was saying. I don't know, but something of that nature. But the correct definition here of the walking or walking about is like wandering or meandering, okay? Our legs are moving, but there's no real purpose, no real place of where we're going. We're just kind of killing time, okay? We're just walking around, you know, do-do-do, just looking around. Um, I tend to think of like window shopping if you're going downtown, down the streets, in a mall, something like that where there's no real purpose. You're just kind of looking around. And if you've ever walked behind someone who was wandering or meandering, you know what I'm talking about. You might be going in a straight line and they're doing this zigzag thing and you're trying to figure out you know, how to pass them or which way they're going. So think about when Paul says you're walking according to the course of this world, it's the meandering type, the wandering type. So imagine yourself, there we are, meandering according to the way of the world, which is gravitating towards the things or the attitudes of the world. Could be a fad, no matter how offensive it might be. It could be a fashion, right, which might be inappropriate or immodest. Any newfangled idea that was popular that we just kind of gravitated towards, okay? Essentially, we were just going with the flow. We were fitting in, just being cool, just hanging out, not making any waves, that type of thing. The trouble with that mindset, though, is as Christians, believers, we're not supposed to just go with the flow, right? We're supposed to live according to his purpose, which most times is against the course of this world and can be uncomfortable at times. We're not supposed to blend in just like a chameleon would. Have you ever met anybody who's like that? Who's just blending in, they go with the flow, those type of things. You know, I just kind of stand back and think, I wonder who they are really. I mean, I wonder what their purpose is or I wonder what they stand for. And then I take a good look back long before Bible college and I think, Hey, that was me. That's describing myself, Mr. Meanderer, right? And probably just trying to find my way or just, you know, looking for something. But this, as Paul is pointing out, is God's target audience. This is his target audience of who he wants to have a relationship with. Now, as believers, we understand that we're set apart from the world, right? We're sanctified. And others are supposed to recognize this that we're different in this way. And hopefully they'll want to know and they'll ask us, hey, what's different about you? You know, Dave, why don't you drink or party anymore, you know, like you used to? Or why don't you cuss anymore? Or why don't you flirt anymore? Or why don't you, you know, fill in the blank 
whatever it is that you don't do anymore. When they do ask us about it, it's a perfect opportunity that we can tell them about God's plan and what he did, what he's already done for us. Great opportunity for that. And easy enough here as we continue the scripture, who is the prince of the air? Right? We all know that. Satan, that's an easy one. But we acknowledge that he has a plan too. And that plan is, he knows he's going down. He wants to take us down with him. Okay? And when you think about going with the flow, you know you think about that word flow? Do you ever think who's directing the current of that flow? You know, at some times, all we need is just a little nudge, and Satan's right there just to direct us right into that current, steer us off the straight and narrow path, and right into trouble. We would just, as the word says, meander, and we didn't even notice that we were being led that way. Sometimes, we just blend in the world, go with the flow, just because it's comfortable there, because we don't want to say anything, not, like I said, not make any waves. You know, we fear, too, that submitting and sometimes surrendering to the will of God, it's going to trap us or restrain us from enjoying life when we don't even realize that he's got this abundance, fulfilling life waiting for us. That mindset that we think we're going to get trapped or restrained is the farthest from the truth that I know. And you know what? It's really a lie. We're really being duped if that's the case. Now, the Word of God has many promises that we put our hope and we put our trust in, and those are all eternal, all eternal promises. So what does the world promise? What does the world promise? Well, uncertainty, maybe randomness or chance. Ultimately, the world will promise you one for sure thing, and that's eternal separation from God. That's what the world will promise to you. What the world does offer that's so enticing to believers and non-believers is instant gratification. Okay? You can have whatever your flesh is craving right now. Right now. And we all know that to be true. Right? If you use your imagination, whatever you're craving, you could have it right now. I mean, you can find it too. With technology the way that it is between the internet and smartphones and things like that, you can find it right now. And the enemy uses those things too to tempt us. Now, God's promises... They are eternal, but we're talking about fulfilling things like life and love and peace and joy and hope, among many other things. I go to a Christian bookstore, and there's God's promises for the businessman, God's promises for the sports nut, God's promises for the homeschool mom. You know, there's God's promises, and they're all the same. They're all his promises, all eternal, right? Well, just as the Holy Spirit will mold you, and the Holy Spirit will shape you and guide you, direct you in your walk with the Lord. The Spirit of the Prince of the Air, he'd be more than happy to direct you to one place, and that is disobedience. Okay, we need to be aware of that. Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything, which is my favorite book of his, he says this, he's quoted in this saying, The biblical prescription for resolving the conflict between flesh and spirit is not personal discipline or self-control, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. Again, let's not make the mistake that we in our own flesh can believe that we have the power to overcome, conquer sin and death. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, what he did on the cross. It's not our work, but his finished work on the cross that made us free. I love any song that mentions us being free. Okay? The desires of our flesh is strong. And I understand that. 
And it doesn't help that our first instinct from infancy really to where we are today, no matter how old you are, is to take care of three people, me, myself, and I, ourselves, right? Very selfish by nature. And the Lord knew this would be true. He knew this to be true. And that's why he encouraged us to lean on him when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. Let the spirit work in and through you. In other words, be led, as Pastor Chuck Smith said, by the Holy Spirit. He knows what's in your heart. Friends, he knows what you desire. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Do we have a purpose? Yes, we're not meanderers, but we were created for his glory and his pleasure. Another scripture here from Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We're here to glorify him. Now, Paul mentions his target audience as well. God has his, which is us, but Paul mentions Satan's target audience as well. Who are they? The sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Now, what's the description there? Anybody who willfully or not lives continuously in disobedience to God's word. It's pretty simple. We were there for sure. It's true. But that's not any place we want to return to. We don't want to be part of that club anymore. And you can see and hear the pressure from society, from media, whether it's print or magazines or internet or TV or whatever, that it's kind of, you know, live and let live, do whatever you want kind of society. I mean, I don't watch this show, but all I had to do was see a preview of it called The Sons of Anarchy. And the preview showed everybody doing whatever they wanted to do. And there's many more. And all I know is if it's not leading you towards God and his word, then where else is it leading you? Okay, that's the challenge. The sons of disobedience here that's mentioned are also mentioned in other parts of scripture. The Apostle Paul has mentioned them in other of his letters. They have a special place in Bible history. Maybe not the accolades they want, but they're here nonetheless. We'll read out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth. And then he lists them out. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Let me say that again. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then Paul hits us kind of between the eyes, in which you once yourselves walked when you lived in them. And so he kind of lays it out there. Please do not believe the lie of Satan just because you walked in the course of this world, which we did, that you're going to always be that person. Please don't believe that lie, okay? As a believer, you're a new creation. We all know that. You're a new creation. See, Christianity is not like, say, Alcoholics Anonymous, where, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Okay? The tendency here to think is that once you've been forgiven, look, you're no longer a sinner who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Okay? Can you still fall into sin? Yes. But when you do, what happens? The power of the Holy Spirit takes over, you're convicted in your sin, and, and you know, something else kind of awesome happens supernaturally too. You can't remain in your sin for very long. You become miserable, uncomfortable. You can feel drawing yourself away from the Lord. You can feel the Holy Spirit really tugging at your heart. 
when you're there. You remember back in the world when you were in sin? We didn't give it a second thought. We just did it. At least that's what happened to me. But knowing that we're pardoned, knowing that we're forgiven, and the Holy Spirit is in us, and he's tugging at our hearts, that's the awesome feeling. That's Jesus saying, I love you, and I'm not willing to let you go, that I want you back. And look, some people would like to claim, and I've counseled many people, and it's sad on one end, but then it's so awesome on the other, because if they fall into a temptation or a sin, they want to morph back into a sinner. They want to morph back into being dead in their trespasses and sins. I know you probably heard the illustration of like the butterfly. I mean, how difficult would it be for the butterfly to morph back into the caterpillar into the cocoon? Very difficult, because that's not what it was designed to do. Well, God's plan is the same way. Once under grace, you don't morph back into that sinner dead in your trespasses and sins. You fall, and you come back to the Lord, okay? And that's the beauty we're going to talk about in a few minutes in regards to grace. That's the beauty of grace, the unmerited favor. Because he sees you as righteous. He sees you as righteous. Based on what? Your faith. Just like he did Abraham. Just like he did Joseph. And the beauty part about Jesus is he doesn't condemn us. Romans 8.1. Remember he said to the woman at the well? He said, neither do I condemn you. What? Go and sin no more. Right? Go and do not willfully continue in the selfish life of sin. That's what he said. Neither do I condemn you. And that's the freedom. There's that word again. Freedom that sin will not have dominion over us. Romans 6.14. See, Satan's always going to say his way is better. Always. And why is it, and I ask myself this too, even into my Christian walk, why do we clutch so tightly to the things of the world that have zero eternal value and zero eternal significance? Why do we do that? I mean, not just worry, doubt, and fear, which are huge because, you know, they ground us worrying about the unknown and things like that. But what about tangible things like vices that we hold on to? Drug or alcohol abuse, pornography, anger issues, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, any other sin that we will hold on to because we feel so tightly that it's ours. You know, as if it has some eternal meaning to God's plan for our life. You know, I encourage you, only because early on I struggled with this. If you haven't done so already, let the Lord free you from these things. Understand freedom from and being delivered from the sin and the law that would have dominion over your life. See, his love, I realize, is greater than any of these vices. Any of these vices. All right, in verse 3, the truth is, and again, we're looking right at ourselves, we did conduct ourselves this way. Now, when I referred to a prior teaching, I pulled out of the New King James Version. The word conduct, conduct ourselves, was always like having conversations or occupied ourselves with these things, okay, which we do, okay? Hey, it's not easy to pry our fingers away from these things that we cling to, but trust and have faith in the Lord that he's there. Our flesh, it does lust. Absolutely it does. I mean, make no apologies for that. But we lust for things like food and drink, sleep, air at times. But there's also fleshly desires that we lust for too. Desires of the flesh, which on the physical side, it could be a sexual appetite, yes. But what about anger issues or things that we can't control that way? Or desires of the mind, okay? Which caters maybe to your anxieties. The Bible talks a lot about that. Fantasy images, control or power, that too. 
You know, in the world, we were children of wrath, for sure. And looking back, you know, I'm glad to say, you know, having been there, done that, you know, don't want any part of that. Hopefully, we're all done with that life, being children of wrath, knowing that we were. Let me encourage you. We can't do it under our own power. We cannot do it under our own power. There's not any work that we can do that can relieve us of those things. Faith. Faith in the Lord alone can do that. Be willing to stop clutching on those things and really give that security blanket over to him. Romans 6.11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon, understand that he has made a way for us to be alive and not remain dead in our sins. See, our relationship, folks, it's not dead, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive. We're alive. We don't go back and forth that way, okay? The enemy would love to have us play that battle in our mind. If you reference the end of Romans chapter 7, where Paul gives us the example of that battle that goes on in our mind before you know, he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, he's describing that, being dead, alive, dead, alive, okay? So in the first section here, as we wrap that up, Paul gives us really the cold hard facts of who the Lord's target audience is, and we know that it was us or anybody who is in that position. All right, so let's go to verses four through seven. Okay. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, part of the plan to address the challenge is who's going to implement the plan, okay? I mean, we know that there we are, hopelessly meandering about, you know, wrapped up in all of our stuff, worried out, fear, caught up in sin, whatever it is. And at that time, we don't stop to think that we need anything. We don't need saving from anything, right? I mean, all our fleshly needs whether it's mental or physical, they're being met. And the truth is, we're desperately in need of someone to rescue us at that time. And so these first two words in verse 4 are so comforting, but God. If we read verses 1 through 3, and then we hit, but God. Now here he comes. God's coming to the rescue. I mean, how comforting is that? That we know right there, these words, they sound so sweet. I liken this to my children who at times have been in trouble and <laughs> they know it. And dad has to enter the room and talk to them, right? And it's awesome being a Christian father because the Lord stops me in all of my flesh of the things I want to do and the things I want to say and wants me to offer up that grace and compassion to the children. And there are times, you know, I look at them and just it's like, look, I know you're in trouble and what you did was wrong, but I'm here. And for a child, that is so comforting. And I took that, the takeaway there was, I remember God doing that to me, okay? And it's so awesome when he made his presence known to me and know that he was there to rescue me. So we realize that God's the one with the plan. 
that's great news because it's not on us. And now we get to find out what vehicles he's going to use. With any good plan, what's he going to use? Right off the bat, he tells us he's rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. So mercy is the first vehicle that he uses. And uh, the Lord is abundant, as we read in this gift that he has for us. Every day, folks, we can take an inventory on all the blessings that the Lord's given us, even when we don't deserve them. Even when we don't deserve them. And he has an unlimited resource of mercy for us. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So awesome. So we know that he's rich in mercy. And then he hits us again, right? He's also great in love. Great in love. Love is the second vehicle that he mentions here. And it's no normal kind of love. This is agape, unconditional, sacrificial, perfect or complete, if you will, love that he demonstrated on the cross for us. I mean, how great is the Lord's love for us? How great, really? We were singing it this morning. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved the world. Agape, unconditional, sacrificial. I mean, he got on that cross before he even knew us, the word tells us. He's our rescuer. He's the one with the plan. See, God stepped in and intervened on our behalf and he says, you know what? No way. They're with me. I love them and I'm keeping them. We didn't do anything. He did it all. First John chapter 4, verses 4 and 10, he said, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. When did he do this? When did he make this plan? We weren't even watching, and we didn't even care. He did this when we were all, as the word says, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. It could have been our lack of faith, it could be. It could have been our willing act of disobedience. It doesn't matter, either way, right? But he died for us before we were even taking notice. That is so awesome. That news is so awesome. He loved us that much. But God, so comforting. Through his love, his grace and mercy has made us alive together with him. Now can you even imagine that the word tells us about being raised up to the heavenly places high above the world with him. Talk about hope. That is awesome. You know, having spent nine years in youth ministry, and I love what Mike was saying, you know, Brett's looking for someone to help out in youth ministry. You want to be taught and fed and ministered to? Volunteer for youth ministry. Volunteer for youth ministry. Because these kids, if they're there, they're hungry. They just want to be loved. They just want to be loved, right? And so I didn't think of any other way. The kids used to crack on me and tease me and everything else, but I knew any other way except to be honest with them. And I would tell them, I said, look, when the Lord got a hold of me, he had to reach deep. He rolled up his sleeves and reached deep for me. I mean, my God, I used to tell him, has long arms. So no matter what condition they were in, he'd grab them. Their hearts were willing. He reaches down with his righteous right hand, and there we are together with him. I mean, that's our position, the word says, in Christ.
Christ. In Christ. Now, that's such an awesome thing to think about, but do we live like we realize that? Do we live like we realize that? I mean, what an awesome testimony for anybody to say that we belong in his kingdom. And why did he do this? Why does he want this relationship? Why did he put so much time into this? Because he loves us. Because he loves us, right? Our Lord will reveal in the ages to come the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. He promises to do this for all eternity over and over and over and over and over again, as many times as I know me and my thick skull needs to hear it, right? All because he loves us for his glory and not ours. And who doesn't want that? Who in here doesn't want that? You know, when I think back, I think what a fool I was back in the day when I was temporarily willing to give up those gifts, those promises for that fleeting moment of pleasure or whatever it was. And I know we struggle when temptation comes up, but there really should be no choice. Matthew 16, 26, for what profit is it to a man that he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or the better question is, or what will man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, you just get to the point where you look at whatever temptation it is and you just say, you know what, I don't need that. I just don't need it. So mercy and love, the first two vehicles, we kind of touched a little bit on grace, but let's look at verses 8 and 9, okay? I promise, I'm wrapping it up. I can almost hear the stomachs growling there a little bit. Okay, verse 8, For grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right, we know this scripture, we've heard this scripture, we've learned this scripture, but... Now that we know what God's target audience is, and we know who's made the plan, this is the third of the three vehicles that he uses. Imagine this. There's God, and he has this desire for a fulfilling relationship with his most prized creation, and that's us, right? And since he didn't create us to be robots, he's looking at us in this condition. He's thinking, okay, how am I going to make this work, right? I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be their God. They shall be my people. How am I going to cause them? How am I going to compel them to be my people? How am I going to get them to trust me? He unveiled mercy, love, of course, but now he's talking about grace. And grace is the perfect answer. Grace is the perfect answer. By this unearned blessing of God, we have been saved. There's no work that you and I can do under our own power to achieve this gift. It's unearned. It's unmerited, it's unachieved, and guess what? We're uninvolved. He did all the work. The beauty is that we have no part in this grace other than the faith to believe it. Other than the faith to believe it. Our faith in his promises give us the access to this grace. And I love Romans 5.2 where uh, Paul says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's all around us, right? Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We think that we bounce in and out of grace. It's all around us to access, right? To access. The word says it's a gift of God, all wrapped up and ready to be opened. And of course, we live it out. We understand that we could not obtain salvation ourselves. So here comes the Lord to rescue us with his gospel. You've heard of this, this gospel of grace, his good news of grace. 
you know, we sometimes take our works more seriously than we should, the works that we do. According to verses 8 and 9, there's no amount of works that we can earn our way into the kingdom, even serving here at the church. Serving here at the church is great, outstanding, no matter what capacity, from the lead pastor to children's ministry, youth ministry, ushers, love them, coffee, whatever the case may be. But just serving doesn't get you that e-ticket, that automatic into the kingdom, your faith. Only your faith. And this is what I personally love about serving. This is what I've always loved about serving. Even when I was back with your pastor scrubbing grout tile by tile in the bathrooms. Because we learned about serving at that point. And you can ask him about it too because we did all that stuff. That we're to serve willingly and not grumbly or thinking of it even as a work. Yeah, are we physically working? Yes. But serving the Lord is a direct response when we realize what he did for us. It's a direct response. It's that fruit. When we realize that, then guess what? We inherit the heart of Isaiah when the Lord asks, who's going to step up? And we say, you know what, Lord, here I am. Send me, use me, whatever the case may be. And what I love about this set of scripture right here, this is where we start to buy in to God's plan. This is where we buy into it, the relational part. By serving the Lord willingly and cheerfully, then we really appreciate how much he loves us and realize exactly, clearly what he did for us on the cross. Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only not to use liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but to serve and love one another. To serve and love one another. A willing servant is a free servant. A free servant is a forgiven servant. None of us will ever be able to say or boast, as the word says, that we did this or that in order to get into heaven. That's the beauty of grace. He took all the burden and he took all the pressure. All we do is surrender and submit. All right, let's finish up with verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, simple enough, right? So the workmanship here, I heard this in a study, but really a beautiful portrayal of it. The workmanship, or the correct definition, is poema. Okay, what word do we get from that? Poem. We are his poem. We are his workmanship, right? We are his work of art, if you will, as God works in and through us. He desires to express himself in and through us, and we respond to his love that way. The good works that occur are not towards salvation, but rather works being the natural response for what the Lord has done. His love, grace, and mercies upon my life. And I love that. It frees you up from the stress or feeling obligated or pressured to serve him. Because you have a purpose. You know exactly why you're doing it. And as believers, you know what? Let's not forget that we do get, there is a judgment for believers, the Bema Seat of Christ. The judgment is for these exact works that he's working in and through us in the body. He knows our hearts, and he also has those rewards promised that are saved for us there in heaven. But we do this out of love for him. And according to the plan, he prepared these good works long before he prepared the foundations of the earth. Be what the Lord wants you to be. Do what the Lord wants you to do. Just don't make the mistake of ignoring a calling that the Lord has on your life. Because when you submit to that and you let the Lord work in and through you, he does wonderful, wonderful things in through you. 
Joel Rosenberg, in his book Implosion, makes the case that God has a mission for his church and for each one, everyone in particular of his followers. He says that we are saved by faith, in part so that we will do good works that the Lord long ago has planned for us to accomplish for him. So there's God's model for his relationship with us. There it is. It's not quite as rigid, not quite as sterile as a business model, but more effective. In these short 10 verses, we identified the target audience. We realized that it's you and I, or really anyone who was in that sinful condition in need of a savior. The plan, the comfort of whose plan it was, it was God's, of course, and then the vehicles that he uses. We throw these words around, mercy, love, grace, as Christians, but to understand that that's his recipe, so to speak, for the personal relationship that we have with him, and then the success, how he implements that in his work in and through us. You know, business models, I'm in business now. I work a secular job and have, and I see this every day. They're driven by their successes and by profit. That's why they're in business. Now, God's model is driven by a personal plea where he does all the work and we surrender to his will. A business is either going to fold or be sold, meaning that the model is going to run its course at some point and the business environment, I can tell you, it's ever-changing, so you kind of got to keep up with the changing. With God's model, it's simple, it's eternal, it hasn't changed, and it's going to be forever. Any way I look at it, there's no better deal out there. Here's his model. I will be their God, we shall be his people. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for your patience and the patience of your people, Lord, as we went a little bit over. And Father, we do appreciate what your word has for us today, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. May we be free, Father, of condemnation, beating ourselves up. Lord, may we understand truly what you would have for us in relationship with you, with your love, grace, your mercy, Father. We do want that relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for doing all the work up front, putting yourself out there for us, Lord. Father, I just ask that you prepare our hearts as we uh, examine ourselves this morning and, Lord, partake of communion. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.